Um, let's take our Bibles tonight. We're going to go to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. I know we started our series in Colossians on Sunday morning. It was never necessarily my intention uh, to spend uh, all of Sunday mornings in the book of Colossians, but that was where we started. Now that we've kind of finished up in Psalm 119, I figured we'd switch our study of the book of Colossians to Wednesday evening. And uh, we'll kind of be moving things around in the coming weeks. I want to just remind everyone, uh, Lord willing, here in a few weeks we'll be starting a series, uh, probably on Sunday nights, on the home and the family. And uh, there's a lot of different aspects of that, of course, and, and there's a lot to that. God has put all of us in a family. Uh, somewhere uh, you fit into a family. Most all of us have an earthly family we were born into. We have father, mother, brothers, sisters, cousins, aunts, uncles, all those things. We're part of a family. Um, and then a lot of us are married. We have our own families. We've started that. And so there's just a lot of different uh, aspects to the family and the home. And even if, if you were born an orphan and left on the doorstep of a fire station somewhere and never known a family, if you're part of this church, you got a family and you're part of this family. And so anyway, these things, I say that to say... These things apply to all of us, and I believe that they'll be really helpful, and I just want to encourage you to try and make it a point to be here and be part of that, and maybe there's even someone you know uh, that would just benefit from that, maybe a neighbor or a friend, and they don't have a church home where they're uh, going on Sunday nights and things. Let, I'll, I'll be announcing in future weeks just when we're going to start that, but that might be a good opportunity for you to get someone in church that isn't or or maybe they only go on Sunday morning. A lot of churches only have one service on Sundays now and maybe just small groups on Wednesdays. So on those kind of off services, uh, it's a good opportunity to get some folks in and, and get them under the preaching of the Word of God. So um, anyway, Colossians chapter 2, if you're there, would you stand with me as we read, beginning in verse number 8, Colossians 2, we'll read 8 through 14. It says here, beware... Lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now we covered a lot of that already a few weeks ago. But look at verse number 10. It says, And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, where, wherein also ye are raised with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him having forgiven you all trespasses, look at verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. You can be seated tonight. I'm thankful for this passage of scripture, and I really debated on just how much we wanted to cover tonight and, and, and how much further we wanted to go, because, uh, you know, as you notice, the sentence doesn't end there, and really the thought continues down through the end 
of the chapter. And so I could have tried to bite off that whole thing tonight. But we're not going to do that uh, because I don't want to keep you here until midnight or something, okay? Uh, But these words in verse number 10, I believe, are kind of the crux of this whole chapter. These words, and ye are complete in him. Speaking of Christ, our sufficiency, our completion, our fulfillment is in Christ and Christ alone. Now, many people today are really struggling to find the meaning of life, their place in life, their purpose in life. They're struggling with an identity crisis. This is a major, major issue in our world today. Um, We lived, as you know, in Fargo, North Dakota, uh, for a number of years. What you may not know is we actually lived there two different times. I uh, I moved there initially in 2006, and I I, kind of completed my training there at Masters Baptist College, and and, uh, we got married in 2007, and so the first, I guess, three, four years of our marriage, we were residents of Fargo, North Dakota. And when I moved to Fargo in 2006, I was doing some research on um, just the demographics of the city. I didn't know much about it. And, and one of the things that kind of stood out to me was, <laughs> was that, um, you know, when you're doing research on demographics, one of the things that comes up is ethnicity. And at that time in 2006, Fargo, North Dakota was 93% white. <laughs> that's a pretty white city, okay? And that's, that's not because of the snow. I mean, it was 93% white people, uh, mostly Scandinavian. That was just, you know, it's just the way it was. Now, we were there from 06 to 2011, and then we moved back in 2016. When we moved there in 2016, one of the first things we did, we got there and uh, we, we were in Walmart trying to pick up some of the things, you know, when you when you move, you make a lot of trips to Walmart, okay? All the things that, that you maybe forgot to move with or things that are packed away. You got So we were in Walmart, and I remember being in Walmart and looking around and seeing that with our white skin, we were in the minority. It was interesting. Now, most of the people there of color are immigrants. A lot of them are refugees from war-torn countries and in Africa, several uh, countries in Africa have sent a lot of immigrants, and uh, social serv- Lutheran Social Services in North Dakota has brought them to Fargo. And so, uh, I mean, there's Somalians and Sudanese and Liberians and people from all over Africa and other parts of the world as well. But here we are in a in a place where we remembered it as not being very diverse ethnic- ethnically. To all of a sudden, we feel like we're kind of the minority there. Now, I I say all of that simply to to tell a story that in that time period between when we first were there in 2006, 7, 8, in that time period, and when we moved back in 2016, there was a huge increase in crime rates, mostly gang-related violence. Now, just to dispel any potential thoughts in your mind that might be there as to why that is. I want you to know that the 
gang activity and crime rates had absolutely nothing to do with skin color or race. Nothing. But I will tell you this, that most of the crime and the gang-related activity that was going on was taking place by those people who had immigrated and were refugees there. Again, nothing to do with skin color, nothing to do with race. But I will tell you this. I believe with absolute certainty that the issue is not race, it's not ethnicity, but it is identity. People are looking for a place to belong. And when you, when you are uprooted from your homeland and you are transported to a place that is totally foreign and strange to you, the first thing you do is try to find people who are like you. Who look like you, who talk like you, who think like you. That it's just naturally what we do. We are drawn to people who are like us. And so it just makes sense that in these places where there are a lot of people that are uprooted, who am I really? What is my identity? That they would kind of come together. And when you have some sadly delinquent youth coming together and 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 they are they, they are defining themselves based upon ethnicity rather than who they really are as a person a lot of times that just creates problems now even in our inner cities here in America we don't uh, a lot of the gang activity is not necessarily related to uh, uh, foreigners coming in but, but a lot of it is a cultural issue where many of these young people, specifically young men, are growing up in homes without a father. And in these fatherless homes, they are left really without much direction and much sense of identity. Who am I? By the way, dads, God has put you in your children's life for the purpose of instilling in them who they are. And who they ought to be. And when that element is removed, it creates major problems in life. In fact, a lot of statistics tell us that children who grow up in fatherless homes without ever knowing their dad are much more likely uh, to commit crime, to end up in prison, even end up on drugs and committing suicide. It's just statistically a reality. God has designed the home for a reason. And dad, you're important you better be present, okay? But anyway, I say all of that to say identity matters. If you don't know who you are, you have a hard time understanding why, what your purpose is in life. And there are a lot of people that are just struggling to find this. We see a total identity crisis in this whole transgender movement. People who are feeling like I I was born into this body, but that's not who I feel like I am. And they're really looking for something that they can, they think that they can put their finger on. This is who I am. It's a really sad situation in our society today. Sadly, there are even many Christian people that really live their life constantly fearful. Fearful of other people's opinions. Uh, fearful of failure. And even potentially fearful of death and what that might hold. And I want to tell you that all of those things come back to really one issue. For us as God's children, all of those problems can be resolved in one simple statement. 
and ye are complete in him. That's the idea. Now, in this passage, Colossians chapter 2, you remember when we read even verse number 8, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Paul is letting them know, I'm concerned that you are susceptible to being swept away with false doctrine, false teaching, and there are specific false doctrines and errors that he's going to address. But he says, I want you to be grounded. I want you to be confident. I want you to have a stability about your life. Christian friend, I want you to know that God wants this for you. He wants you to be grounded and stable. He wants you to be stable in your doctrine, your beliefs. You ought not to be easily swayed or moved. He wants you to be uh, 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 confident in who you are in him. And, and friends, I, I just want you to know that a person who knows the Lord and has embraced the reality of what the Bible says we are and who we are in Christ will have a stability and may I even say a boldness about their life that others are lacking. You don't need to be insecure. You don't need to be fearful. You don't need to wonder what is so-and-so thinking or, or what is my image or, 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 or what is my place. You can have a boldness about your life that God desires for you that is all wrapped up in who he is and understanding who you are in him. So he says here, the first thing he points out is just that, the sufficiency of Christ. Verse number 10, ye are complete in him. I want you to understand that based upon that, we understand that we don't need anything else to make us acceptable to God, accepted in the beloved. We don't need anything but Jesus. No amount of wealth or social status makes us a better person. I want you to think about that because this is a problem uh, in Western society. We pretend that it's not. But it is a problem where we tend to have respect of persons and, and we, are, we look at someone who is highly successful, who's well educated, who's fairly well off financially and their social status is high and we look at them differently than we look at someone who's lacking in education and living in a trailer park somewhere and, and, and just uh, kind of not necessarily of the same status. We look at them differently. It's just the way that we're set up. It's the way that, that we think oftentimes. But I want you to know that that's not biblical. Because a lost person living in poverty is way better off. I mean, a saved person living in poverty is way better off than a lost person living in the lap of luxury. And the reality is that if you've got a saved individual who is well-to-do financially, educated, intelligent, successful, and you've got someone over here who maybe is none of those things, but he knows Christ as well, they're on the same plane. They're brothers in Christ. And by the way, our bond in Christ is far greater than any bond that this world has. It doesn't really matter who you are or where you come from. If you have Jesus, you have everything you need. You're complete. In other words, your life doesn't need a bunch of external uh, uh, 
things to, uh, to, to, to prove or, or, or status symbols to prove uh, that you have arrived or you have made it. If you know Christ, your life is complete. Now, I'm not saying that we don't still strive to do better and to improve ourselves and to grow and to expand our horizons and to use the opportunities that God has given us. I think we ought to do that. I think as a child of God, we ought to be concerned about our testimony and and, and, and the way that we even appear to those in the world because we want to be a representation of Christ. But all I'm saying is we do not have to achieve some level of success in order to find fulfillment and and completion in Christ because the moment that we become a child of God, we're complete in Him. We're complete. No amount of religion will make you more acceptable to God. If you have Christ, you have it all. So he speaks of the sufficiency of Christ, but then he also mentions the sovereignty of Christ. I think this is really, really important. Look at the end of verse 10. He says, you're complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. What is he saying? He's saying Christ is above everyone and everything else. Look at verse number 15. It says, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. What's that talking about? Well, here's the thing. When Jesus died on the cross, that was according to God's perfect plan, was it not? The Bible calls him the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This was all God's plan and purpose. However, from a purely human and temporal standpoint, the moment of Christ's death was a moment of victory for his enemies. In other words, when Christ gave up the ghost on the cross, it appeared as though Satan won. Does that make sense? I mean, he's, he's been killed. But we know the end of the story that three days later, he rose again. He overcame the power of death. He overcame, I mean, imagine what that was like for Satan and his angels beholding as Jesus walked out of the tomb alive. To live forevermore, I love in Revelation chapter 1 where Jesus identifies himself. He says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. That's who he is. And in his resurrection, he triumphed, he had victory, he won the war over all principalities and powers. Now, just so we're, we're clear on this, when the Bible speaks of principalities and powers, it's not talking about the physical realm and world that we live in. It's not talking about kings and those in authority on earth. It actually is talking about those who are in authority in the spiritual realm. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 tells us, right, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And here is what the Bible is telling us. Christ has defeated all of them. He is above all of that. There is no 
demon. There is no spirit that is greater than Christ. First John chapter 4 uh, tells us in verse number 4 that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We, we overcome by him because he is greater. He is greater than all. Why does this matter? It matters because so many people are fearful. Right? We, if we're not careful, we can live our lives in fear and afraid of the things of this world. The circumstances that could happen, some people are fearful of spiritual things. And friend, I, I know we kind of make light of it as Americans and, and people even make fun of the, the idea of spirits and, and that kind of stuff. You go to other parts of the world where people are into uh, spiritism and Satan worship and stuff like that. I just want to tell you, uh, that stuff manifests itself in a very real way. In ways that most, most Americans would be shocked if they saw with their own eyes the things that actually happen. Because I want you to know, Satan is real. His demons, his devils are real. And they have power. And there are many people that are fearful of those things. Many people that are fearful of the things of this world. And, 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 and fearful of sickness and death and all kinds of different things. But... But what is he saying here? Listen, Christ is above all of that. He's above all of that. And if you are in him, you're complete. You don't, need to, you don't need to live fearful. You don't need to be insecure. Trust him. He is sovereign. He is above all. There is nothing else that we have to fear. I want you to hold your place here and go with me to Psalms and chapter 27. Psalm 27 and if you're one who struggles with fear and worry and that kind of thing, I want you to memorize this verse of scripture. I think it would be really, really helpful for you. Psalm 27, verse number 1. <clears throat> Psalm 27, 1. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Then it asks this question, Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You see, if you are in Christ, if you can honestly say, the Lord is my light and my salvation, you can answer that question honestly. I, I won't fear anything. I'm not afraid. You don't need to be afraid. Listen, we don't need to fear death. If you are in Christ and you know that your sins are forgiven, you are on your way to heaven, I want to tell you something. The moment of death for a Christian is a moment of victory and triumph. We may not enjoy the process. We might even dread the process. But the moment that I draw my last breath here and my heart stops, I'm going to draw my first breath of heavenly air. That is a win-win situation for me. What did Paul say? For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I, I, I mean, I want to continue living so that I can serve the Lord here on this earth, but I want you to know that whenever God calls me home, hey, it just gets better. So why would I fear that? 
I mean, he, he's, he's taking care of everything. Oh, by the way, I'm afraid that, what? I, I'm, gonna, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job. Hey, is your God in control? I'm afraid that my health is going to fail. Does God have the ability to heal? Now, that doesn't mean that you're always going to be healed. But it does mean that if you're not, it's because God has a purpose. There's, no, there's nothing in this life that we ought to fear because God is sovereign. And so he, he really addresses this issue of our sufficiency, but also the sovereignty of Christ. And I really believe that in this passage, he is trying to get these Colossians to, to find a security, to find a confidence in who they are in Christ. Don't live your life insecure because you're in Christ. You have no need to be insecure. So the sufficiency of Christ, the sovereignty of Christ, and then look at verse 11 because it may seem to you as though it's kind of strange that he would just transition into this, uh, th th this statement. He says in verse 11, In whom, in Christ, also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What's he saying? Why, why is he talking about circumcision? Again, to us as 21st century Americans, Westerners, this seems strange. Because to us, the issue of circumcision is one of um, medical, you know, hygienic decision, right? Uh, a lot of male children that are born, the majority are circumcised for, for health reasons, and some are not, and whatever, right? We just, we, we look at it as a medical decision. However... You have to understand something. Circumcision did not begin as a procedure for the purpose of health. Circumcision began as a covenant between God and man. And it was first given to Abraham who was to be circumcised at the point that God made a covenant with him. You remember that? And so Abraham was circumcised, and then Ishmael, his son, then Isaac when he was born, Isaac, Jacob, all of their descendants. And circumcision was the physical appearance, the physical marking, if you will, that a person belonged to God. We understand that the, the, the Jewish people, Israel, the descendants of Jacob, were God's chosen people. God had made a covenant with them, and they were, by birth, the seed of Jacob. They were the seed of the promise. And their physical bodies, all of the men, all of the males from eight days old and upward, their physical bodies testified to that fact. And that circumcision was a marking in their flesh that identified them as such. Now, that time went forward... And remember, at that time, only the Jews were circumcised. The Jews and those who, were, um, who came and lived among the Jews. Like, uh, you know, someone would come and, and kind of embrace uh, the, 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 
the Lord, Jehovah, uh, they would come and they would be circumcised. But nobody else in the world, the rest of the Gentile world was uncircumcised. And this was a, an identifier between God's people and the world. And you even find the, uh, the wording like that throughout the Bible, the circumcision, or you'll hear the uncircumcised. You know, uh, uh, Goliath, for instance, that giant, was identified as this uncircumcised Philistine. The idea was he is an ungodly man. He's not one of God's. Well, you come over to the New Testament and you find that God is working not only among the Jewish people, but also among the Gentile people. And by Acts chapter 10, you've got this kind of outbreak happening where Gentile people are being saved. But you still had the circumcision. That being the Jews, and particularly in certain contexts we would say Jewish believers. And believe it or not, in churches... From the very beginning, there was some tension between Jewish believers and Gentiles. If you read the New Testament, it becomes pretty obvious. There was uh, Acts chapter 6. There was a murmuring between the Grecians and the Hebrews. Uh, and, and, and really from there it just went on. And Paul addressed this in, uh, in the book of Ephesians and in Romans and different places. But here's what happened, and if we can, uh, can you pull up that slide with the map? Uh, in Acts chapter 15, in fact, if you go there with me, Acts chapter number 15. And look at verse uh, number 1. Now, Paul is in Antioch, and I want you to notice it says, and certain men... Acts 15, verse number 1, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. And so what are they saying? Okay, here are people, they're coming probably from the church in Jerusalem. Remember, they were Jews by birth. They were part of the circumcision, and then they received Christ. Well, now they're coming to these Gentile churches. Here's Antioch. I'll see if I can pull this up, if you can see that green dot. This is Antioch here. Jerusalem is down here, right about there. And so Paul's up here in Antioch, and these Christians from down here come up to Antioch, and they say, hey, you're Gentiles, and I know that technically... You're saved because you believed on Jesus and that's what it takes to be saved. You've got to have Christ. But you know, you're still Gentiles. You're still uncircumcised. If you really want to be saved, you've got to get circumcised. This was the first form of legalism. You are saved by Christ plus something else. By the way, I want you to notice verse number 2. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. So they, 
right there. They, they said, no, we're not going to put up with this. They dealt with it, and then Paul and Barnabas, they headed back down to Jerusalem basically to say, listen, James and the other apostles here, you need to fix this problem because this problem came from you. And they ended up sending letters to the Gentile churches saying, hey, uh, salvation is not by your works. It's by Christ and his shed blood, and that's it, all right? So that heresy started at Antioch. But then when you read the book of Galatians, what do you find? The book of Galatians is all about this problem where you have believers in Christ, Gentile believers, who have adopted a philosophy that says that I have to conform to the law of Moses, primarily circumcision, in order to be considered part of Christ. And so Paul writes the book of Galatians to say, no, listen, salvation is by grace through faith. It has nothing to do. Well, I want you to, I want you to notice Galatia is kind of in this area right here. So the heresy of circumcision being necessary for salvation started, well, it started in Jerusalem, made its way to Antioch, and then all the way over here into Galatia. And what is the church that's being written to that we're reading about tonight? Oh, that's the church at Colossae, which is right there. So I believe that Paul is probably addressing an issue. Because the, the book of Galatians was written about 56, 57 AD. Colossians was written maybe about three, four years later. And I think that that mindset and philosophy had maybe crept a little bit further west over into Colossae. And these people got this mindset and this idea, well, I know that I'm saved in Christ, but don't I have to conform don't I have to be circumcised? I mean, isn't that kind of like necessary in order for me to be saved? And here's what Paul is saying. Listen to this. He says in verse 11, in whom ye are circumcised. Wait a second. Paul, we've never been circumcised. We're Gentile. What is he saying? He says, ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You can put the map down. Thank you. Here's what he says. He speaks of the sufficiency of Christ, the sovereignty of Christ, and then he speaks of the sign of Christ. What is the evidence that you belong to God? In the Old Testament, the evidence that you were part of the covenant people was in your flesh. Circumcision. It was a marking that identified you as one of God. Fast forward to the New Testament, that's no longer the case. Here's what he says. The circumcision that we have is not that which is made with hands. It's not an external thing. He says, in putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ... Look at verse number 13. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Here's what he's saying. The sign of being a child of God, being in Christ, it's not physical. It's not external. The evidence is actually in that 
when you got saved, your life changed. There was a change in your heart. There was a change in your desires. There was a change in what came out of you. And it wasn't some external identifier, a mark. Oh, that's a Jew. They're of the circumcision. It's something so much more. It is this. Your life changed. There is evidence that you belong to God. And it's not a mark made in your flesh when you were a baby. It is an actual evident transformation that took place when Christ came in and changed you. He changed your heart. He changed your desires. And by the way, it is an inward effect that will be reflected outwardly. What is, why, why does this matter? Why is this? Because imagine the insecurity that you would have as a Christian who maybe felt like, oh, all those people over in Galatia, they're circumcised. They must be a better Christian than I am. Paul says, no, 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 no. It's about the heart issue. It's about who you are in Christ. You're complete in Him. You don't need anything else. God has made you what He wants you to be. The true evidence of salvation is not just outward change. It's inward change. Romans chapter 2, and we'll conclude with this tonight. Romans 2 and I want you to notice the wording here. Romans 2 and verse number 28. It says, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of man, but of God. And so all these things he's saying tonight, just to, to really summarize this, in saying you're complete in him. Christian friend, if you are in Christ, you don't have to worry about what other people think of you, about your social status, about finding any other identity than that of being in Christ. Rest tonight in the knowledge that you belong to Him. He is sufficient. You don't have to fear because Christ is sovereign. He is above all and over all. You don't have to be in competition with other Christians to see who can look better, who can look more spiritual. You simply have to be in Christ. And the change that he's made in your life and is making, listen, he's doing it for his glory, and it is all about him. And tonight, can I just encourage you to rest in the sufficiency of Christ in your life? Don't live life as an insecure Christian. If you know Christ, you are no lesser than anyone else. There really is no such thing as a better Christian. There are just those who are in Christ. And listen, that, that's not an excuse for us to live carnally. It's not an excuse for our, us to ignore the work that Christ is doing in our lives. But I just want to encourage you. Walk with the Lord. 
and live your life concerned about one thing. How can I please him? Don't worry about all these external things. Trust and rest in the all-sufficient, complete Christ. 